Who becomes a sexual offender? Why do people commit sexual offences? Should the perpetrators of arguably some of the most unacceptable crimes be treated differently by the criminal justice system than they currently are? These are some of the questions we hope to answer in this episode of Consent Vent. My name is Paul. I'm a master's student at SOAS and a producer at SOAS Radio. For this episode of Consent Vent, we're exploring the prevention of sexual violence and reform from the side of the offender. To do that, we're joined in the studio via Skype by Juliet Grayson from the charity Stop So. We'll be discussing the work of the Stop So organisation and the services they provide. We'll be learning about why they provide this service, the methods they use, and finally, to discuss the application and the ambition of reform and rehabilitation for people who have committed sexual offences or people who think they might. Thank you for joining us, Juliet. I'm delighted to be joining you. So firstly, could you tell us about why the organisation Stop So came about and how you would like to describe the work that you do? Stop So was formed... Originally, we started meeting in 2011 and we actually saw our first client in 2013. And it was a group of people, most of whom were therapists, who had had so many clients coming to us who'd been sexually abused that we really thought this is a big problem. And rather than keep working with the lifelong consequences, which are utterly devastating, of sexual offending and sexual abuse, we thought, why don't we help the people who are committing the offences? And we had heard, all heard of various people who had tried to get help. So I knew someone who had um, been in prison for committing a sexual offence who had desperately tried to get help before he went inside. And I'd also had someone who was making obscene phone calls and he came to me to get help to stop it. But I was the fourth therapist that he came to and the other three had basically shunned him or judged him and not helped him and so we as a group decided let's work with the perpetrators and make sure that if there's someone in the UK who is sexually attracted to children let's make sure that they get the help that they need to never ever act on that attraction and so we formed Stop So originally it was called the Specialist Treatment Organization for Perpetrators and Survivors of sexual offences and what we do is we have over 200 therapists who we have trained all across the UK who are ready and waiting to offer therapy to anyone who feels at risk of committing a sexual offence. Um, we've also in the last year expanded our services to offer therapy to survivors of sexual offences because we realised that although there are some areas where these are very well catered for. So in the last year, we have also expanded our services to work with survivors of sexual abuse as well as with perpetrators. And the reason for this is that although there are some parts of the country where they have really good support, really good rape and sexual abuse centres, there are also many areas in the country where there is no support for someone who's been sexually abused either as an adult or as a child or recently or historically you know a long time ago and so we having the network already set up of therapists who are trained in this whole field we decided to expand and um, offer services to those people too in terms of um, in terms of perpetrators and since you or perhaps since you've started your your organization has the stigma have you seen a change in the way in the stigma regarding um, perpetrators of sexual violence has that has there been an evolution in that that you've seen I think it's just beginning to happen so what I'm noticing is that when I do radio interviews the interviewer used to say things like how can you bear to work with these people 
um, or, you know, they should all be locked up. And more recently, interviewers are saying to me, of course, we should respect the people who have the guts to come forward and ask for help. So I think there is the beginnings of a change. Um, since we started, um, we have had two th over 2,900 inquiries for help from perpetrators. Um, and 1,700 of those came last year. So more people are getting to know that we exist and that there is help out there for them. And more people are coming forward saying, you know, please help me. I, I, I need help and I want help. So... And, and as, a, as a society, the best thing we could do is make it safe enough for someone to be able to come forward for help without feeling afraid that they're going to get judged or criticised or shunned. They're going to get the help that, they're gonna, that they need in order to ensure that they never do. In terms of when people, the people who come to your service, um, just to talk about the people who haven't committed a sexual offence yet but think that they might, that feels like quite a, a fine line to, to know to have the self-reflection and self-awareness to know that you might do something, but that you haven't done something yet. How, in your experience, the people who come to you who haven't, who haven't committed a sexual offence yet, how close are they? What are the, what are the signs that they, that they feel that they might do something? There's several questions in there, so let me take those one at a time. So, so the people who come to us who haven't yet committed a sexual offence, we did an online questionnaire of our sexual offenders and we said, at what age did you first know you had a problem with your thinking or behaviour? And 11% know by the time they're 10 years old, 51% know by the time they're 16, and 72% know by the time they're 25 years old. So that's quite something. And yet, of the people coming to us at the moment, only 3% are under 25 one of the things we really need to do is let young people know that they can come and get the help that they need to ensure that they never commit that first crime. Um, and that's what Stop So really is about. We're trying to stop the first crime from ever being committed, whereas the police obviously only kick into action after a crime has happened and after everybody has been so badly damaged. But our main aim is to stop the first crime, as you say, and... Um, you know, so we need to let young people know that this service is out there. So what you're doing is fantastic because I think it will raise awareness among young people who know that their sexual awareness is their sexual attraction is unusual and will feel able, I, I hope, to come forward and get the help that they need to never become a perpetrator. When you say that their sexual attraction is unusual, do you mean um paedophilia or do you or is it more broad in terms of the way that they relate to people perhaps adults as well as children we work with anyone who's going to commit a sexual offense so we work with people who are attracted to children we work with people who are looking at internet images we work with rapists we work with voyeurs exhibitionists people who are looking at illegal images other than children so bestiality that kind of thing so we will work with anyone across the whole range who wouldn't you work with? Because I, from looking at your website, it, it sounded like you might not work with people who were convicted paedophiles. Is that, is that right or have I misread that? No, you've misread that. We, we, we work with everybody at every stage. So we work with them before they've committed the first crime. If they've committed a crime but want to not commit another crime, we'll work with them at that stage. If they've been through prison and, and have come out of prison post-conviction, we'll work with that, them at that stage. So 10% of the people who come to us are post-conviction 
Um, 51% of the people who come to us are in the criminal justice system when they come to us. And 39% that come to us aren't known to the police or social services at all. Someone who hasn't committed a sexual offence yet, what are the kind of things that people cite as being the the turning point that they decided, I need to, I need to talk to someone about this? Hmm, that's an interesting question. Maybe they've just managed to get their confidence up to take a chance. Um, so they probably have been aware that they've been, let's say it's someone who's attracted to children. They probably have been aware for a while that they've been attracted to children, but have felt terrified to mention it to anyone. Um, so I was contacted just a few weeks ago by a 14 year old who said, I'm a paedophile and I've been a paedophile all my life. And my first reaction was, hold on, <clears throat> you're 14, you know, what on earth are you talking about? That was my internal reaction. And then this person said, I'm attracted to two-year-olds to eight-year-olds. And so that is the definition of a paedophile, someone who's attracted to prepubescent children. So, and they, this person hadn't told their parents and didn't want to tell their parents at this stage, but had found us and reached out to get help, which I think is wonderful. I think that's absolutely fantastic. We've been able to give them the help that they need. So sometimes it's that someone's had a, a, an awareness for a long time and then they've managed to get the confidence to step over the threshold of asking for help. Sometimes it's that they'd never heard of us and suddenly they've heard of us so they know help is available. Sometimes it's that their behaviour is escalating. So they might have found themselves looking on the internet at images of children who are fully clothed, but they know that they want to look at images of children who are not fully clothed. And they become aware of, you know, more excitement around that. And they realise that they're on the cusp of committing an offence and they come to us before they have done that. You mentioned a 14 year old, but is there... Um, there seems there's a lot of misconceptions or a lot of stereotypes and stigmas around who who looks like a, who might be a sexual offender can you maybe talk about um some of these misconceptions and how um and maybe some of the realities of who who might be a sexual offender yeah so when people say to me what does a sex offender look like i say they look like you and i um so there are it's widely accepted that are probably about two or three percent of the male population have a sexual attraction an exclusive sexual attraction to children um, so that means that if, if you know 100 people, you know two or three people who are attracted to children and they're living amongst us and we just don't recognise that they're there. There have been studies done where they have wired someone up, a male up to, because uh, it's majority of them are male, 10% are female, but the majority are male. And they've wired a male up to what's called a plesmograph, which is a, a, a like a blood pressure cuff that goes around the penis and monitors arousal and directions if they play them adult pornography and they play them children's pornography you know pornography with children involved both audio and video what they find is that one in five men will be equally or more sexually aroused to images of children than they are to adults why is there a higher prevalence of of men to women is there has there been any studies into why the sort of psychology or biology of that not that I'm aware of. I don't really know why. Can't answer that question. Yes, and because I've been reading a little bit about some of the, from some of the articles on the Stop So website, there seemed to be some articles that were saying that the attraction to children might be a biological I I inherent thing that someone can't help, and that and then others were arguing that it was seemed to be arguing that it was a sort of there was like a nature nurture argument going on there. And I wondered if you could talk the a little bit about that. 
Yeah, the way I think about it is that if you think of there being a continuum and at one end we have people who are only attracted to adults and at the other end we have people who are only attracted to children, Mm -hmm. then in the middle there is a section of people who are attracted to adults and children. Right. There's been some research by a chap called James Cantor who we've got a conference coming up on May the 1st. This is 2019. Um, and he's going to be um, doing a video link at our conference to talk to us. He's a neuroscientist and a psychologist, and he has studied the brains of paedophiles in prison. And what he has found out is that there are a whole load of unexpected correlations. So they're likely to be two centimeters shorter than the general population. They're likely to be uh, 10 IQ points lower than the general population. They're three times more likely to be left-handed, which is higher than the um, amount of left-handedness for schizophrenia, for example. Mm -hmm. Um, They're more likely to have webbed fingers and toes. And all of these things are correlated with what happens in the fourth and fifth month of pregnancy. And what happens then? Well, what his his, um, proposition is that something has happened, and we don't know what, whether it's caused by stress or whether it's caused by nutrition or toxicity, but something seems to happen in the fourth and fifth month of pregnancy that can predispose people to be paedophilic. And here I'm separating out the definition of paedophilic from child molester. So a paedophile is someone whose primary or exclusive sexual attraction is to prepubescent children, i.e. 11 or under. Um, So there are many non-offending paedophiles who never go on to commit a crime and who never look at child abuse images and who are constantly staying law-abiding. And so being a paedophile does not mean you're going to become a child. And in our society, we're very bad. We use the terms very loosely and we muddle up paedophile and child molester. So most people think when you talk about a paedophile, you're talking about someone who has committed an offence. And actually, that's not necessarily true. And so in terms of staying with this separation between paedophiles in terms of people who are attracted to children and people who actually are the perpetrators of sexual offences, what what are some of the causes that can trigger someone from either being going from being a paedophile to someone who is becomes a child molester or someone who perhaps is uh, feeling like they might cause a, a sexual offence to actually doing it? What what are those triggers? Well, certainly almost everyone I've worked with, and this is true for most of the stop-so therapists, what we're finding is that they have trauma in their history. So often there's some traumatic event, often around the age of eight or nine for boys, seven for girls, and that seems to corrupt the, te- the sexual template. In other words, it seems to take people... So if you go back, if I go back to the continuum for a moment, at the one end you have the percentage of people who are always attracted to children, only ever attracted to children, and they're just going to have to spend their whole lives managing that and not acting on their sexual attraction. In the middle, or you know, maybe three-quarters of the way down the line towards the sexual attraction to children end, you have people who can be attracted to adults and can be attracted to children. And it seems to me, my theory is that if one of those people has a trauma at a particular time, and as I say, being eight or nine seems to be a vulnerable time, then 
they seem to be able to become attracted to children. And if we heal the trauma through therapy, it seems that that attraction can be swung back to adults. There is a group of people who we have the ability to change their sexual attraction and then there are a group of people who we cannot change their sexual attraction because they're they are a hundred percent attracted to children and so what would if if you if your organization wasn't available what what else would where else would they be able to go what where would this type of person go there is there there was when we set up there was and there is nowhere else that is offering therapy in the community close to where they live on a one-to-one basis to help them within a matter of days of them making contact so when someone contacts stop so within they can start with a therapist usually within a week or two sometimes within a day or two and there's no other organization that's offering anything like that and so how would you uh, in terms of the the service you provide, how would you describe what it is that you, it, when someone comes to you and they start having therapy, how does how would you describe that process? So there's a lot of things that we will look at. We'll look at what their predispositions are, and it depends. If you're dealing with someone who's already committed an offence, then you're looking at what are the pathways that have led them to commit an offence. First of all, they have to overcome their internal inhibitors. We all have things inside us that let us know that we shouldn't steal from shops, we shouldn't rob a bank, we shouldn't knock an old lady over, and we shouldn't commit a sexual offence. And people who've committed a sexual offence have to find a way to overcome those internal inhibitors. So if they're going to commit a sexual offence against a child, for example, they have to persuade themselves that the child wanted it or was interested in it or somehow they have to find a way to justify it to themselves and then they have to find a target who is vulnerable and then they have to persuade the target and persuade the target's family that they are an okay person who is safe and then they have to find a way to make the child convinced that they should never tell anybody else about what's happened so there's there's a series of steps that have to happen to enable someone to actually commit a sexual offense and as a society there are various stages where we can pick up and monitor a child who we think is particularly at risk and and what you're doing with this consent and and encouraging people to go for active consent rather than you know being able to say no which is a really important skill to teach children and adults but not only that but if we persuade society that they have to actively ask so that people say have to say an active yes to, to to being engaged and i'm talking here about adults not about children you know that's a very very important thing and and as a society we have the opportunity to look out and to intervene and to take care of the people around us to help ensure that sexual offences don't happen. How does society change its position on the way it thinks about sexual offences or sexual offenders? At the moment, there's a lot of fear. Is there another way that society can look at um, committed sexual offences? I think what we do need to do as a society is really change our attitudes. We need to recognise that these people are living amongst us. We need to recognise that if they, the way for us all to protect each other and for society to be safer is that people can say, I have a sexual attraction to children or I have a sexual attraction to animals or I have a strange sexual attraction and get the help that they need 
never to act on that. And we need to make it acceptable for people to admit. Logically, that's the way to go. But but of course, we all, it's a very emotive subject. And we all get very hot under the collar about the idea of sexual abuse. And, and a lot of people think we have to lock them all up. The only way to protect society is to lock them all up. Actually, that's not a practical solution. If you go back to the National Crime Agency in 2012, they said that there are 750,000 men in Britain with a sexual attraction to children. And there are currently about 80,000 spaces in prison. So unless we're going to build a whole load more prisons, you know, we can't lock them up. And even if we lock them up, they don't stay locked up. They come out of prison. So therapy is really the way to go forward. And people feeling able to say, I need help and get the help that they need is also the way to go forward. But at the moment, it's very, very difficult for someone to admit that. It would be fantastic if a boy of 20 could say to his mother, mum, can you help me find a therapist? Because I've got this attraction and I don't want to act on it. Is this an opinion that's shared by survivors, do you feel, that in terms of this this approach to people who've committed sexual offences in terms of um, rehabilitation I suppose as opposed to prison is that is this a is this an opinion that survivors also share from your experience I certainly work with survivors myself and they all know what I do and that my main focus is on perpetrators and they all celebrate and congratulate me for doing that and they recognize that that is you know if we can stop the first crime they wouldn't be a survivor and they all see the benefit of that. However, I think that a lot of the general public haven't stepped back to think what is the most effective way of keeping society safe? Because, of course, if you're going to lock them all up, you're waiting for them to have committed a crime before you're going to catch them. So immediately you've got a victim. I'm trying to create a situation where we don't even have victims, where you know, literally before the first crime, people are given the help that they need to be able to stop. And of course, not everybody is going to want to come forward for that help. But we know from our statistics that, you know, nearly 3000 people in up until the end of 2018 had come forward asking for help, and they were perpetrators. So we know that there is a large group out there. And if you think about those 3,000, you know, 2,900 people, let's say 3,000, those 3,000 people, if you think about the number of victims that have not been created because they've had help and therapy to stop them from acting out, I think that's just exquisite. I, I think that's, you know, a gift to society. I was wondering, going back to the way that you, the way that this service works, of these, when these 3,000 people come to you, what, what do they what process do they go through with you how does the therapy situation work so they they will first of all contact us via the stop so website that way we can triage them we can check out what level of therapist do they need do they need someone who's used to looking at on working with someone who's looking at online images or are we dealing with a more complex case of someone who is committing contact offenses or has committed contact offenses and then we look at the geographical area and we find someone close to them and then they start within a matter of days they can start with their therapist and they'll look at things like, have they got a disturbed childhood? What's the history in their childhood? What's the sexual arousal patterns? What, what, what is it that, help, that makes them aroused? How effective is their emotional self-regulation? Does stress exacerbate their problem? Are they more likely to act out when they're stressed? Or do they have good strategies for handling 
stress or loneliness or anger issues. Then we'll be looking at, do they have antisocial attitudes? So sometimes there are people in society who just hate a group. So maybe they hate women or they feel like they deserve the right to have sex when they want it. Um, I, I came across an organization a while ago, INCEL. I don't know if you've heard about INCEL. INCEL stands for involuntarily celibate. So it's a group of people who feel like women should be giving them sex and they're not getting sex where they want it. And there's a lot of anger and blame directed at women as a result of that. So we're looking at antisocial attitudes and we're also looking at life management skills. You know, how effectively are they able to hold down a job, keep a house, have friends? Because all of these things will minimize the risk factors. If people who have good friends, people who feel like an important part of society are less likely to commit a sexual offense. And I was interested in one of the one of the approaches that you use in your therapy that you'd written about in your article, um, Back to the Root, Healing Potential Sex Offenders, Childhood Trauma, with the Peso-Boyden System psychomotor technique. And so I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about this this technique, the Peso-Boyden System psychomotor technique. So this is an exquisite method. Um, it's the most effective therapeutic method I've ever come across, and it's one that I use personally, but it's not widely used in Stopso, but, I, but it's my preferred method of working both with sex offenders and with survivors and with the general public. So I have five groups up and down the UK that are ongoing groups where people sign up for a year, and one of those is a group of sex offenders. All the other groups are just for the general public. So, so I don't mix the sex offenders in with the general public, or at least the group that is for the sex offenders, the general public who come to that know that there are sex offenders in that group. Basically what we do is one person is a client and we look at what was the early history that may have predisposed them to committing a sexual offence. And we then use members of the group to role play the parental structure that they needed in order to have a happier and a healthier childhood. So for example, one guy that I worked with used to come home and his parents would be making love in the living room and they didn't stop when he came home from school. And 40 years later, he came to me as a voyeur and he'd learned the habit of watching people having sex when he was seven, eight, nine, ten. And, you know, so we very easily in that situation, we create ideal parents who are completely believable to the client. And they create a scenario where, you know, clearly they would say, if we'd been your ideal parents, we would never have been making love in a place where you would see us we that would be we would teach you about proper boundaries and we would do that behind doors and then with this client we his boundaries were all over the place he had no real sense of limits and was always um you know simple things like he would drive down the middle of the road rather than on the left hand side of the road because he kind of felt like he owned the road so simple simple things it manifested in every single area of his life and in a structure, which is what you call a Pesavoiden session, we let him push against his ideal father, someone who was representing that for him. And he pushed and pushed and pushed, and the ideal father didn't budge. We gave the, the, the man who was role-playing his ideal father, we gave him people who could stand behind him to support, because this test should have happened when the boy was about four or five or six, and maybe again when he was in his teens. 
But obviously, we now had a 50-year-old man pushing who was very strong. So we needed a group of people to be able to absolutely hold the boundary. And the man role-playing the ideal father said, if I had been your ideal father when you were a child, you, I would not have let you inappropriately push boundaries. And he pushed and pushed and pushed and pushed. And then he screamed with fury and anger. And then he suddenly got to a point where he stopped pushing. And he said, oh, my God, that's such a relief. And he had, for the first time, been safely contained. And he was then able, I mean, it sounds very strange, but he was then able to internalize that he didn't have to always push and push and push and overpower other people. And and he said that the uh, voyeurism just fell away. He just stopped wanting to do it. And it was like he got some new internal sense of boundaries in a completely different way. That sounds like quite an intense process to go through. Does it, Is everyone able to take part in that? Or, or are there some people who just can't engage with that because it's almost, it sounds theatrical. Do you know what I mean? It sounds like a drama game somehow. I do, I do. What you do is you build it up very gradually so it's very believable to the person. And if it's not believable to them, then it doesn't work so there's no point in doing it and and it can go in many 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 different ways so i might have someone else who feels like the root of his sexual offending is because he was never really held by his mother and so he keeps having sex to try and get physical holding and contact which isn't actually the person he really still longs for it from is his mother so we would have someone enrolled as an ideal mother who would literally curl up on a sofa there'd be an ideal father there as well and, and, and hold him like a, a year old baby, for example. So it can go in lots of different ways. The only people who really can't benefit from it are people who are unable to discriminate between the symbolic and the literal. So they need to be able to understand that this symbolic pushing of a person who's representing an ideal father fits, you know, is, 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 is not literal but can be internalized as if it were literal because they do have the physically literal experience of pushing so that's literal but they're pushing someone who should have been their father because in this system what we say is that the healing comes from the right kinship relationship at the right age so in other words let's go back to the situation with the person who represented an ideal mother for someone many of us look from our partners we're often looking for early needs to get met that didn't get met with our parents and we so we try and get our partner to hold us in that way but actually because the need was not filled by a mother figure when we were young the partner tries and tries and tries and tries and eventually gives up trying because they can never satisfy this big inner hole when we do it in a structure in a in a client session using an ideal mother because they're the right kinship relationship it goes in in a whole different way and it's it's quite extraordinary the impact so for anyone who has what in the trade we call early attachment issues where the bonding with the parent was not well done Pesso Boyden system is the most miraculous way of healing that and people come away saying I feel calm for the first time in decades or I no longer carry the anxiety that I was carrying or my inner voices are not being critical anymore but they're they're quietened and I can be kind to myself in a different kind of way. Is this type of therapy is this something that someone can do once and then it's a sort of and then they're cured to for want of a better word or is there or is it something that needs reg, something that needs regular maintenance that they have to go regularly to have more more of these type of therapy sessions 
It depends on the complexity of the initial problem. So if you're talking about a sexual offender, then it usually will take more than one session. But if you're talking about a member of the general public who's got mild neglect in childhood, but not on a very serious level, maybe mum was slightly depressed or something, one session can be enough to just change it. And, and other people just decide to keep coming along because they, they say, well, it's done that piece, but now the little bit, almost like a mosaic, you know, there's, it's done the big chunk in the middle, but there's a little bit on the edge. I want to work on that as well. So some people will come along for a, 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 a few um, or even a few years to really heal themselves to the level that they want to. And are there people that you feel or that they feel that, that they can't be helped that they've come to they've come to therapy sessions maybe they've come to a few and that it just doesn't work for them they can't they they can't find improvements I, so i probably run getting on for a thousand structures now i would say maybe more i don't know a structure being a client session and in that time i've had two or three who felt this isn't the right method for me maybe four but in sort of 15 years of running it the vast majority find it very beneficial. Not everybody. And if it's not beneficial, then we try another method. For those four, three or four that haven't been, been able to find success with this method, are they always able to be helped by you? Is there always something that you can do to help? Or is there some people who are beyond help? Because that's the sort of, that's the, uh, the assumption perhaps in in broader society that there's some people who are inherently bad or something that they, they can never be reconciled. Well, Stop So is an organisation that people come to voluntarily. So I suspect there are people who are very happy with committing sexual offences and don't think there's anything wrong with it and who wouldn't want to come to help. But I would say that for people who are motivated to help themselves and get the help, the support that they need, then usually there's something that can be done. It may not be a magical solution. It may not be the, the magic wand that they're hoping for, but usually there's something that can be done that helps them feel better about themselves and makes them less likely to act out. Or if it can't, you know, if you've got someone who has an exclusive sexual attraction to children and you're not going to change that, then you can help them think through what are the ways in which they're going to have to manage themselves. So for instance, I had a client who fitted in that category he had he was only attracted to children not attracted to adults and he learned that he would sometimes walk to work on a route that took him past the school playground and when we talked about it he realized that that was him slightly titillating himself slightly getting off on looking at the children and actually it wasn't helpful for him because it just reinforced his attraction and it was kinder to go a different route to work that didn't pass that playground so some very practical things about you know when do you go swimming you swim at a chart time when there are not children in the pool when do you go to the gym you know those kinds of things you you, you live a life that avoids temptation. Another guy I worked with, if a teenager would come and sit next to him on the bus, he would move chairs because it was just it was too much temptation. And he learned that it was uncomfortable for him and the best thing was for him to move. So how do you, so it, it seems like that the, the, the therapy that you're offering is actually incredibly successful. How, how do you see this work fitting in within the, the criminal justice system? and the treatment, the, in particular, the treatment of sexual offenders? 
What we would like is that the criminal justice system, it costs 64000 to put someone in prison for a year if you include the police costs and the court costs. I think of that about 40000 is the cost of keeping someone in prison for a year. And what we would propose is that the criminal justice system releases sex offenders three months or two months earlier than their sentence would suggest and that the money that is saved, that three, four thousand pounds, whatever it is that gets saved in that, is used to give the person a year of therapy. I can't imagine a society that would allow someone who's committed a sexual offence not to go to prison. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, I'm not saying it's an important part of it. I'm sort of saying it's an inevitable part of it. Right. It, it may well be that it would be better for them to go straight to a therapeutic setting where they got help the sad thing is that if you go to prison for less than a year, you're not eligible for any of the, any of the in-prison treatment programs. If you don't admit to your crime, you're, I think you're still not eligible for the in-prison treatment program. So only a small percentage of sex offenders who go to prison actually have any treatment at all. So they're locked up and then they're let out and it's assumed that they're suddenly going to be able to manage their behavior in a different kind of way and i would say that's unrealistic and that we need to be helping them in the community when they come out not to commit a further sexual offense and that's where stop so really can make a difference and how does your how do you i noticed that chief constable simon bailey is one of your patrons and i wondered how that relationship began and how that's important or if it plays a part in the way that the organization works chief constable simon bailey he's the national police chief's lead on child abuse so he is the man in the uk who is responsible for policing around child abuse and he came and spoke at our conference last year and was impressed by what we're doing and trying to do and as he says you can't arrest your way out of this and he recognizes that by the time the police have got involved a crime has been committed and that what Stop So is trying to do is prevent a crime from being committed and to stop the first crime. So he completely and utterly supports what we're doing and sees us as a part of the solution. And he's a wonderful man and he's doing a lot of really good stuff around child abuse in the UK. And But the volume is just completely overwhelming for the police. They, they cannot manage the volume of sexual offences that they're dealing with, particularly with the internet now available. A lot of people are looking at child abuse images and that's just overwhelming. Have you seen an increase or a change in the amount of, or in the numbers of sexual offences committed? I think what I've seen is a change. I mean, certainly the number of sexual offences has gone up and in, in the sort of in the last year, as it were, the police recorded crimes against children was 64,667 and what they said was that uh, the crime commissioner, the ch- sorry, the children's commissioner did a report protecting children from harm and in that they reckon that only one in eight children comes to the attention of the statutory authorities. So in other words, for every child who gets to the police and the crime is reported, sexual crime is reported, there are another eight children who haven't so we did the mathematics on that and that means that every day in the uk there are 1417 1417 new cases of child sexual abuse that's a staggering figure we've been on this call for about 45 minutes 
there are 1,440 minutes in a day. So 1,417 children sexually abused every day. That means in the 45 minutes that we've been on this call, there will have been about another 42 children who've been sexually abused. New cases of sexual abuse in the UK. So there's a lot of work to be done in terms of the in terms of how the perpetrators of these acts are are treated. There's Absolutely. A... And if anyone's out there and can hashtag, we, we we've got a hashtag for that. It's hashtag one four one seven stop so. So please use the hashtag and publicise it because I don't think most people are aware of the scale of the problem. It is huge. It is enormous, uh, and we really all need to be doing everything we can to try and lessen and reduce and wouldn't it be lovely if we could ultimately stop it? So, Juliet, we've spoken quite a lot about abuse towards children, but in terms of abuse between adults, do you have people come approaching you about this about this type of abuse and about about the lack about lack of consent within relationships? And have you seen an increase in that or an, or a change in that in recent years, especially with with reference to the Me Too movement? It's an interesting question. I think um, we do get approached by people who have been accused of rape. I think what you're doing with these podcasts around teaching people more about consent is so important because my own experience working with clients, so that's a very small number, but my own experience is that often when they're accused, they don't really think they've done anything wrong. So there's a lack of awareness in, let's call it perpetrator or abuser, that about where the line is and a lack of understanding that um, actually you should up front say, can I kiss you? Can I touch you? And not, not wait, not try to touch and try to kiss and then get told, no, you can't. It shouldn't, the onus shouldn't be on the person who's being touched. It should be on the person who wants to touch. And in an ongoing relationship, you know, people often think, well, we're married now, so I should be able to have sex when I want. And they don't really realize that actually it's perfectly possible to be raped by your husband if you're not consenting. Is this something that you feel needs to be explored or, or this sort of service in terms of providing education about consent? Is that something that you think needs to be highlighted more in, in the sort of social discussion? Absolutely, yes. And I was talking to a mother who is very aware of this. She's in her early 30s and she's got a child who's seven. And she said something to her daughter about, you know, um, I think granny came over and said, give me a kiss. And she said to her daughter, only if you want to. And the grandmother said, of course, she's got to kiss me. If I want to kiss, she must kiss me. And she said, no, I'm teaching my daughter about consent. And I'm teaching her that she has the right to say yes. And she has the right to say no. And I thought it was lovely to hear that awareness that actually the way we bring up our children and the rights we let them know they have over their body and you know what they um, allow to happen to them starts young before they're sexually aware and and I thought that's great that child is going to grow up into a teenager who's going to know that it's okay to say no and also is going to know that they should be asked before something happens I think probably everyone's had that from a grandma at some point and not and it's not even considered it's not even considered a non-rhetorical question in some way. I was wondering you've been working in this in this area for for a while and and you founded this organization and I can imagine that this is a very 
emotionally exhausting work. So I was wondering how do you balance that and how do you continue to work on the sort of issues that Stop So works on without it impacting your emotional well-being? I'm fairly robust, but it does impact my emotional well-being at times. And I do get affected by some of the stories I hear, which can be pretty horrific. One of the things that my struggle is that I'm currently... We have two members of staff at StopSo, and we're desperate to get funding to be able to get a CEO. So my full-time work is not with StopSo. And what I do with StopSo is voluntary and in the edges of my life but takes way, way, way too many hours out of my life. And we need to find funding to get a CEO. We need to find funding to enable... So of the people who come to Stop So, 20% of them can't afford to pay for therapy. So the way it works is that most people pay for their own therapy, and that works very well. 20% of them are either on benefits, or they've just lost their job, or they're young, and, and they're under the age where they've got an income. Maybe they're still at university, maybe they're even younger than that. And what we're desperate to do at StopSo is find funding so that when someone rings us up and says, I know I'm going to commit a sexual crime, I'd like help not to, but I don't have any money, we don't have to say, well, in that case, we can't help you. And we're constantly trying to get money from grant making charities and trusts and things. And we get little pockets every now and then so that we can subsidize someone who needs it but we're desperate to be able to get enough money not to have to turn away someone who's explicitly asking for help in terms of the service that you do are there other um are there other organizations that you'd like to acknowledge in terms of the work that they're doing in combating sexual violence or are you really the only one out there at the moment well there's the lucy faithful foundation that does great work um they provide group workshops for people who are looking at internet images of children they also provide group workshops for the families of people who are looking at internet images of children and that's really important work there's a helpline called the stop it now helpline which most of the people who call through to that don't manage to get an answer because they're overwhelmed and can't answer all their calls but that's designed for anyone who's worried about a child or worried about their own behaviour, or worried about a family member potentially being a perpetrator. And then there's a very excellent organisation called Circles of Support and Accountability, who provide volunteers to work with someone who's a severe sex offender who's come out of prison, and to help them check out their thinking and, and check whether their approach to life is normal or slightly strange. So you'll have five or seven volunteers who will um, meet with that sex offender every week for a year or more to support them and help them to have pro-social lives rather than anti-social lives. So those are the main ones in the UK. And we're the only ones offering therapy to survivors and perpetrators, you know, as, as, as quickly and effectively and one-to-one. So the work that we do is very, very tailor-made to what an individual needs. Thank you, Julia, and thank you so much for talking to us today, and thank you for the work that you've been doing. Where can listeners find out more about what you and StopSo are doing? If they go to our website, www.stopso, so stop sex offending, if you think of it like that, stopso.org.uk. There's also a donation button there for anyone who feels like 
giving £10. That would be really, really helpful. It all adds up. Um, and our help number is 07473 299 0747 299 We also online have uh, forms that if someone is a potential perpetrator, they can fill in. Um, and ask for help and we'll make a referral after that. We also have a, a support network, which is an online support group for the family members of perpetrators who are really the unacknowledged victims in all of this. No one thinks about the impact that it has on people who find out that their husband or their son or their brother has committed a sexual offence. And that can be deeply shocking. So we have an online free of charge network for those people and that can be accessed via the website as well thank you so much for talking to us today juliet you're very welcome it's been a pleasure